Welcome in. Welcome aboard. Seth Goldberg with you here on a show to be named later. It is June 7th, 2018, and we are rolling here. We got plenty to get to on today's podcast. We've got Barry Abrams of ESPN joining us towards the end of the show, talking horse racing with him. The Belmont this weekend. Another chance for a Triple Crown winner. We just had one two years ago after not having one for nearly 40 years. So we'll talk to Barry Abrams about that in a little bit. I want to get to the NBA Finals, to Game 3, to Kevin Durant hitting the dagger in the same building, in the same spot, in the same game as he did last year. We will get to that coming up a little bit later as well. But I want to start with Syracuse. I want to start with Chris Carlson's article about Dr. Gross and the revelation that he was getting paid quite a bit of money after he was after he resigned and was asked to resign as athletic director. Let's start there here on a show to be named later. And I don't think going back, what, now three years, I don't think anybody would be surprised if you told them, eh, Dr. Gross was asked to resign. I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. The university needed somebody to take the blame for the academic scandal, for the impermissible benefits that that happened and that were found. Somebody had to take the fall. And Dr. Gross ended up being that guy, right? Ultimately. He was the one who was out of the job as the athletic director. He was the one who all of a sudden became the vice president at the university, taking on some random role, helping in marketing, and we don't really know what he did. And he was the one who was going to go teach at the Fox School. A class, by the way, a class, by the way, that I was enrolled in up until about a week before classes started. I decided to drop it at the very last minute. But with that being said, this story is mind-blowing to me. And there there are a couple things, and we're going to have Chris on the podcast tomorrow, but there are a couple things in this story that are absolutely incredible to me. First off, he resigns. Right? You ask him to resign. He's gone. He's done with the athletic department. And then he signs a new, new three-year, $1.5 million contract. I don't know what you could have possibly had him doing that would be worth keeping him around and paying him $500,000 a year for three years. Chancellor was relatively new at that point. I don't know what kind of relationship the two of them had. But it must have been some hell of a relationship in order to say, hey, I I need this guy around. His marketing prowess was so great that I need him here. I need him on my staff. Right? That's what happened. And then you get to the secondary point of Chris's story. And this is the more shocking and frustrating part, I think that if you are a Syracuse alum, as I am, or fan, I think that the more frustrating part might be that they then paid him to go away, and they gave him a severance package when he left a job, you know, one year in, and they paid him $675,000 to move cross-country. It's just one of those things that that doesn't make much sense, right? It's just one of those things 
that becomes questionable, that you have to sit back and just ask, what are you doing and who is making these decisions? Right? Like, it's it's just one of those things that you, you've got to question. It was weird at the time. Right? The whole thing was weird at the time. You announced that Doc Gross is resigning, but you're kind of sort of still hiring him and employing him. You announced that Jim Beheim's going to retire, but not right now, in three years, which, oh, by the way, isn't happening. So now that we have hindsight here, and we've got the benefit of sitting here three years later, what happened? Right? Like, think about this. What really happened? What was the punishment for the people involved at Syracuse University? What was the punishment for the people involved in in academic fraud? Where is that punishment? Where did it go? Because I'm not seeing it. And Syracuse fans out there are going to say, Wow, how can you say... That they're not punished. They had a postseason ban. How could you say that they're not punished? Those wins got taken away. How can you say they're not punished when UNC got away with far worse and didn't and, and had nothing against them? And like that's fine. But ultimately no one really got anything taken away from them. Except by the way, since you brought up that postseason ban. Except for Rakeem Christmas. Except for the seniors on that team who didn't get one more run in the NCAA tournament. That's who was punished. That's who had an opportunity taken away from them. Not Jim Beheim, who's going to coach here for more years after this year. Not Daryl Gross, who got a contract for $1.5 million after he resigned as athletic director. No, they weren't punished. Those kids on the 2015 basketball team, that's who ended up punished. Don't come back with 101 wins getting taken away. Don't. Because everybody knows that's a joke. And vacating wins is stupid. And Jim Beheim has won more than 1,000 games. Don't come back to me with that. The only people who ended up punished in this whole thing were those kids on that basketball team. Those kids that were de- were taken away from postseason play. Who were not given the opportunity to make a run and make that NCAA tournament. Now, would they have? I don't know. I don't think they would have. But they didn't have that chance. That's the only group of people here who was punished. And Doc Gross lands on his feet with some cushy job doing, uh, I don't know what, teaching a class two nights a week in the sport management department, helping out, being a vice president of the university, whatever that's supposed to mean. And life just goes on as normal. And when he finds an athletic director job that he wants to take, he takes it. And he goes to the chancellor and says, hey, I'm going to take this job. And the sentiment is not congratulations, good for you. It is congratulations, good for you, and how can we help you? What can we do to move you out there? What can we give you? 
It's incredible. It's incredible to me. Nobody got punished. None of the adults in the room were held accountable. None of them. Not Dr. Gross, not Jim Beheim, not the Chancellor, none of them. They all benefited. The people who were punished, the people who were held accountable, were kids, college kids. Rakeem Christmas, Mike Benege, Trevor Cooney. Those guys were punished. Nobody else. It's incredible to me that this happened. It's one of those things that you just sit and and can't believe. It's one of those things that you sit around and, and you can't imagine that this is how something would go down like this. Yet here we are. And I know that anytime you bring up Dr. Gross, you, you get into some kind of an argument over what he did, whether he was good for the university, bad for the university, whether he succeeded or failed. He was here more than 10 years. And, you know, I should say, and I probably should have said this earlier on, for the most part, I'm somebody who would say, you know what, Dr. Gross did a relatively good job. Daryl Gross did a relatively good job at Syracuse University. He really did. And you know all these facts. It's it's nothing new that I'm going to lay out here. Basketball program thrived. The women's basketball team grew to length, grew to heights that had never been seen before in at this university. All the all the Olympic sports were incredible. The Mellow Center gets built. The football practice facility, although late, ultimately gets built. The one thing that's always held against him is not being able to figure out football. And that's a big one thing, by the way. That's a big one thing. But how about this? Just chew on this. Football was good enough to get them into the ACC. Right? Like, it didn't hold them back. Oh, and by the way, that's another thing in the positive column on Doc Gross. He got them into the ACC. He's got a complicated legacy. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, like I, th- I think he did more good than bad for Syracuse University. And I know that there are people out there who, who can't forgive him for not getting football right, who hate that he took football games and moved them to, Mad- to uh, the Meadowlands, who hate his insistence on brand and, and being so brand conscious. But you know what? All that stuff, moving games to the, to the Meadowlands, being brand heavy, calling yourself New York's college team, all that stuff... Improving Olympic sports, non-rev sports, all of it got you into the ACC. All of it made you not UConn. And now that we've sat here for, what, four or five years in the ACC, wouldn't you say, as a Syracuse fan, you'd rather be in the ACC than not be in the ACC? And so, yeah, there were a lot of faults, and there were a lot of missteps over the years for Daryl Gross. Most of them had to do with the football program. Like, let's be honest. Most of his mistakes, most of his faults had to do with the football program. But with that being said, he left the department in good position, right? Like, outside of having a a one-year postseason ban for basketball and and a couple-year scholarship reduction, 
They ended up going to the Final Four a couple of years in a row. So I, I think things are all right. Like, I think things are going okay. But then this report comes out today. And I, I can't help but say, how? How? How in the world do you do this and, and allow this to happen? Even if you sit on my side, even if you sit on my side of this argument, and you're at the extreme side of my argument, right? And you're like, no, he did no wrong. He, he did great things for this university. He built up all our other sports. Basketball continued to thrive after winning a national title. Had, had arguably its, its best period of success. And you know what? He didn't figure out football. He hired the football coach who set us back however many years. And I don't know that we know. You know, even if you're on the extreme side of my he did more good than bad argument, how can you advocate? for giving him a contract, paying him that much, after you had to have him resign because of an academic fraud scandal. I just, I don't understand it. That's the thing about this that that is confusing me and has confused me all morning since reading Chris's article and reporting. Which, by the way, fantastic job reporting this out by Chris Carlson. I can't wrap my mind around being that person in the office who says, you know what we have to do? You know what we've got to do here? We've got to keep this guy around. We've got to keep this guy around. So much so that even though he resigned and his contract is now void, we've got to go give him essentially the same compensation. Oh, and you know what? When he comes back to us a year from now, we've got to pay him to go away. Even though we're not firing him, we've got to pay him to go away. The whole thing is unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. We'll have more on this tomorrow, as I said. Chris Carlson will join the show tomorrow uh, to to tell us a little bit more about this, to break this down for us a little bit more. So this story is not going away. We'll get to more of it tomorrow with Chris. Before we get to some NBA Finals, talk to Kevin Durant, what the Warriors did last night. Allow me to remind you to listen to the Daniel Baldwin Show all summer long. Be caller number 10 when prompted to call. And you'll register for a UPS happy hour party for your office at Shaughnessy's Pub in the Marriott Syracuse downtown. This month's party, June 22nd, brought to you by UPS and ESPN Syracuse. So when you're listening, call in. When you're told, you register. You hang out with Josh and Paulie and Daniel Baldwin, of course, from Daniel Baldwin Show. You get some pretzel pups and you hang out with some friends from the office. So be sure to be listening all month long. Now back to a show to be named later. Back here on a show to be named later. I want to get now to the NBA Finals because last night's game was really something. Game three in Cleveland. It's the second year in a row that we've had an entertaining game in game three in that building. And it's it's really interesting to watch because I know I said it on the podcast on Wednesday and, and talked about this and tweeted it out before game three, but that felt like the game for the Cavaliers. Didn't it? Like, you're coming back home. You hope you get something out of your role players. You know, you know LeBron James is going to be incredible. Maybe the energy of that crowd and the energy of that city will be able to carry you to a win. And I never got the feeling that who was going to. I never got the feeling that that energy was there, that the role players were going to be good enough. Which is weird, because sitting and watching that game, Steph Curry was terrible, right? Couldn't, couldn't hit water if he fell out of a boat. Clay Thompson was 
not good either. And it was really only Kevin Durant who was doing much of anything offensively. Meanwhile, the Cavaliers got something out of J.R. Smith, especially in the first half. Got good first half out of Kevin Love. Got a good game, a great game, again, out of LeBron James, of course. It's expected by now. He had 30 points and a triple-double. How is that not a great game? And then Rodney Hood comes out of nowhere, right, and scores 15 points, which could not have been expected. Yet the Cavaliers didn't win. Right, they did everything right. They did everything right. And the Warriors, it seemed, did everything they could not to win. Yet they couldn't win. And that was my reaction really at the half. And and Steve Kerr said this after the game. But at the half, you're sitting there. And Cleveland's up by six. And I get this feeling that the game is not over, but that the Warriors are going to win, and that the Warriors are going to have a lead by the end of the third quarter. And sure enough, they did. And and Steve Kerr said this, given what they did in the first half, there was a little luck involved to only be down by six at the half. We felt very uh, fortunate to, to only be down six. Uh, I think we were down 12 early in the game, and they were getting every rebound, and, and we couldn't make a shot. So... You know, Kevin Kevin was the story in the first half, just keeping us in the game, and then he was the story in the second half as well, um, closing it out. It's really incredible what can go wrong and what the margin of error is for this team. And, and I know that you're probably sitting there like, of course there's a margin for error, a large margin for error for this Warriors team. They had a 73-win team. They had an all-time great team. And then they added Kevin Durant. And then they added a league, uh, former league MVP. And then they added one of the five best players in basketball this year. I get it. I get it. Of course there's a large margin for error. But isn't it also pretty remarkable, just watching this team, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. Steph Curry did nothing. Klay Thompson struggled. J.R. Smith had a good start. Rodney Hood had a fantastic second half. LeBron James did what LeBron James does. But it doesn't matter. Because you have to be perfect to beat this team. LeBron James says this. You have to be perfect to beat this team even when they have an off night. You know, it's almost like you know playing the Patriots. You just can't have mistakes. They're not going to beat themselves. You know, when you're able to either force a, a you know, a miscue on them, you have to be able to capitalize, and, and then you have to be so in tuned and, and, and razor sharp and focused every single possession. You can't have miscommunication. You can't have laws. You can't have my faults or my bads and things like that because they're going to make you pay. And when they make you pay, it's a 3-0 or 6-0 or 9-0 run, and, it's, you know, and it comes in bunches. So, you know, the, the, the room for error is just – you just can't have it. And, and we know throughout the course of a 48-minute game, there are going to be plays where, you know, it was a miscue there or it was a miscue there. But, you know, for the most part, throughout 48 minutes, you just can't have a bunch of those, not especially against this team. And it's remarkable to watch because it seems like no matter what happens in a game, you never, you know, feel comfortable against that Warriors team. Or if you're rooting for the Warriors or are on the Warriors – you always feel comfortable that you'll be able to pull that game out. 
And that's where I found myself even at halftime of that game last night. Oh, the Warriors will win. Steph might hit a shot or two. Clay will get going. Kevin Durant will keep being awesome. They'll win this game. And ultimately, that's what happened. Ultimately, that's the amazing part of this team and of what Steve Kerr and Bob Myers and, and this franchise have built. That they don't have to all be good at the same time. They don't all have to be on at the same time. And I don't know that there's been a game in this NBA Finals yet, through three games, where they've really been at their best. I think that Game 2 is as close as we get. Game 2, they were incredible, right? Steph was awesome. Kevin Durant was incredibly efficient. And they were awesome, and they won. But we haven't seen it too often during this NBA playoffs. We haven't seen it too often that they've been fully engaged. But in the end, they're going to win. And that brings us to the moment of the game. That brings us to the defining moment of the game. Now Hood picks him up on the switch. Shot clock at five. Kevin Durant way outside. Delivers! Kevin Durant from downtown. It's a six-point game. That's the same spot we had it in game three last year. Kevin Durant does it again. Kevin Durant pulls up from three on the left wing in Cleveland in game three to launch a dagger through the hearts of the Cavaliers. Second year in a row that he's done this. Essentially from the same spot on the floor. I know LeBron James said afterwards it wasn't the same spot. No, that wasn't the same shot. Uh, The one he made tonight was about four or five feet behind the one he made last year. Um, Last year, you know, we're up two. And, um, you know, he, he pulled up pretty much right at the three-point line. I got a great contest, but he made it. Um, tonight, you know, they're up three. Um, he come off a pick and roll, and he just stopped behind and pulled about four or five feet behind the three-point line. So, um, you know, same wing, uh, different location, but uh, you definitely tip your hat. I mean, he's, that's what he does. He's a scorer. Um, you know, he's an assassin, and uh, that, was, that was one of those assassin plays right there. But it was pretty close. It was pretty close. Kevin Durant about four feet deeper than he was last year. And it had so much of the same look. He dribbles into it. He pulls up. He hits it in your face. And Kevin Durant did some unbelievable things last night. I mean, just go back and watch. First off, the efficiency. And being able to score 43 points on, on 20-some-odd shots. Unbelievable, right? Like that. That is efficiency that you dream about. That is efficiency you dream of as a basketball coach. But look at some of the shots. He's being guarded by Kevin Love, by Kyle Korver. He's got a hand up in his face. Rodney Hood did a good job on him defensively, too, in the second half. He's got hands in his face and is highly contested, fading away, drifting to the side, pulling up from three, beyond the three-point arc. And it doesn't matter because he's a freak, right? Because Kevin Durant is a freak of nature because he's seven feet tall with guard skills. And he can do whatever he wants on a basketball court. And it doesn't matter if you've got your your hand in his face. It doesn't matter if he's drifting to the left as you, you have a hand up contesting. He's putting a shot up over you, and it's going in. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. It is just this incredible ability to make shots. And he showed it again last night. Last night, 
is why the Warriors went out and got Kevin Durant. Last night is why the Warriors wanted to add one of the five best players in basketball to a 73-win team, to a team that was already really good. They needed to add something else. They needed to find that next piece. And they found it in Kevin Durant. Because they realized in losing to the Cavaliers in 2016 that sometimes shots aren't going to go down. Maybe your legs get heavy towards the end of the year. Steph and Clay, shots just aren't going to go. We need somebody who's more more reliable a scorer. And that's what Kevin Durant is. He is a scorer. He is an assassin. He's a shot maker. And he showed that off again last night. Before we get to Barry Abrams, I want to remind you, check out all our podcasts. I know you know about our iTunes feed already. You're listening to a podcast right now. But check out the other ones. On the Block with Brett X, The Daniel Baldwin Show. Don't forget to check out our website, ESPNSyracuse.com. And you can find any interview we do in the audio vault. Tons of content for you. Orange Nation will be up there when we come back in August. So there's a lot for you there on ESPNSyracuse.com. And every day, the podcasts get delivered straight to your phones on iTunes and Google Play. So just subscribe, ESPN Syracuse. All right, now as promised, we bring in Barry Abrams. He is the host of the In the Gate podcast for ESPN, you can hear it on ESPN's podcasts on your podcast page on your phone, uh, and also watch on ESPN Plus, the new streaming service for ESPN. Barry, how are you? Welcome aboard, and, and I know you're a Syracuse alum, so welcome back to the uh, to the Syracuse area. Oh, it is so good to be back in the area, at least virtually. How are you, Seth? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, and and you know what? Uh, I'm a casual horse racing fan. I, I get in, I get interested for these three races a year. And we get Justify this year, who goes out and wins the first two, and it always makes the last one more interesting. How important is it for horse racing to to suck in somebody like me and have a horse that, that gets the first two legs? Well, certainly the casual crowd is going to be more interested. And I think what we saw after American Pharaoh is that more people are starting to want to get involved in the sport. I don't think a triple crown is going to quote unquote, save racing. I never thought that, but I figured, and it has happened that people have started to get involved both on the high level and at the moderate level. Like you see with justify, he's co-owned by about 50 some odd people from a number of different partnerships who all came together. Uh, so you see it at the high end level, but even on the more moderate level, uh, you see some of these tracks starting in Minnesota with Canterbury Downs and Churchill Downs does it, and full disclosure, I'm part of what I'm about to say, that some of these tracks have started what they call racing clubs, where you know a middle-class person like you or me can pay just a couple of hundred bucks or so and do it one time, and you're involved in a nonprofit partnership with a particular horse. And you know, the partnership lasts for as long as the horse remains in training. And, you know, that way you have a fairly fixed cost that's not too high, and you're not going to make any money on it. It's a not-for-profit. But you get the the thrill of being involved and, you know, getting to meet your horse, getting backstage access, so to speak, uh, and just becoming more socially involved, too. And we all know the Derby's is a party and the Breakness is a party and so on. So... I think you're seeing a little more of that, and you might call that the Pharaoh effect. 
you know, I was curious, and this is something I wanted to ask about that effect. You know, I know for a while people said, oh, well, you know, it's it's not the worst thing that we're chasing down this Triple Crown, right? It's it's almost 40 years. Nobody's done it. It seems unattainable. Do you think it's better to have that chaser or now that Pharaoh's, you know, done it, you know, to get the bump from what he's done and, and winning the Triple Crown? Well, that you know, I understand what you're saying that, you know, people are saying been there, done that with Pharaoh. And that was a cathartic moment because it had been so long with so many near misses. But. On the other side, we also celebrate collectively, really, the three triple crown winners of the 1970s, Secretariat, Seattle Slough, and Affirmed, all of them. And so I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, you know, winning the triple crown is really hard to do, which is why it hadn't happened for 37 years. And so if any horse is able to complete it, it's a big deal. Maybe I'm jaded. I'm in the business. But to me, it's a hard thing to do. And it's a big deal to be celebrated. Yeah, I loved it a couple of years ago with, with American Pharaoh being able to pull it off and, and, and win at Belmont. I remember I went uh, when I was younger. I went when War Emblem was going for it at Belmont. I grew up in the New York area and everybody was so excited. And, and it was one of those near misses that you talked about. Well, it was a little bit more than that. I was there that day when War Emblem fell flat on his face coming out of the gate. And it's interesting because people are saying, well, what about Justify? To me, that's really the first obstacle that he has to encounter is the break. Now, he's never had a problem breaking, but, you know, Belmont Park is a very loose and sandy racetrack, more so than many others. And sometimes it is hard to get your footing coming out. And if he doesn't break well, maybe not fall on his face, as War Emblem did, but if he doesn't break well, going from the rail, the rail normally is not a problem in the Belmont Stakes. In fact, more winners of the race have come from the rail than any other post. But if he doesn't break well with a target on his back, I think the other riders would certainly try to box him in, to keep him penned down and not get out into a comfortable position, what's called race riding, you know, riding specifically to beat him. So, I don't see why he wouldn't break necessarily, but if he doesn't break well, that could be a problem. You know, I heard you talking about the race riding uh, on the podcast uh, in the gate, and I found that really interesting, that there are horses that in theory they'll say, you know what, maybe we don't win, but we just want to make sure he doesn't win and, and kind of keep him off the, the, the winner's circle. Well, yeah, I mean, the best example of that I think you could find is if you go online and if you remember a horse named California Chrome who was going for the Triple Crown in 2014 – the first race that he ran after the Belmont, where he finished fourth and lost the Triple Crown, was the Pennsylvania Derby. So if you go online and look for the 2014 Pennsylvania Derby, you will find uh, the ultimate example of race riding. Those other jockeys were determined to keep him penned down along the rail because they knew that California Chrome doesn't like to be in tight spaces. He prefers to run out in the clear, and he didn't win. Uh, Bob Baffert's horse, Byron, won that race and wound up winning the Breeders' Cup Classic and so on. But that is the best example of how riders will gang up to beat one specific horse. If Justify doesn't get out of the gate well, that could happen to him. So uh, last one here on, on Justify specifically. Do, do you think this is a horse that can get it done? You know, watching it in the Derby and, and in the Preakness. And, of course, uh, if it does win in the Belmont, it'll be the first horse to finish the, the Triple Crown undefeated since Seattle Slough. Do, do you think this is a horse that can get this done on Saturday? I can give you an argument yes and give you an argument no. And I'm very torn about it. To argue yes, he, number one, has a lot of talent. 
I mean, every horse that runs in North America and around the world is given a power rating after every race, a way to equate different tracks, different distances, weather, competition, everything. It's a way to compare apples to apples. When you're bringing along a horse from his two to his three-year-old year, and of course the Triple Crown is only open to three-year-olds, horses will start out running numbers in the 60s, 70s. They'll progress up into the 80s by January, February. By the time you get to the Derby, one or two of them will hit 100. Every one of the first four races Justify ran was over 100. And the Preakness was a slight regression to 97. So talent clearly there. Number two, the running style of the Belmont suits him because he runs up near the lead. Now, you would think in a race as long as the Belmont, that would be not good. But the pace is always so slow because it's something of a marathon that front runners usually have enough energy to be around at the end. So the running style suits him too. Those would be my arguments that, yes, he's going to get this done. Now, we celebrated the idea that Justify was only the second horse ever and the first in 136 years to win the Kentucky Derby without having raced at the age of two. So he was playing catch-up. This will be his sixth race in, four, in under four months. Horses are not trained that way anymore, at least at the championship level. They run three times in four months, maybe four. This is, and nobody's questioning Bob Baffert. I mean, it's the Triple Crown. That's what you do. But I think at some point, the schedule has got to catch up with him a little bit. And this might be the one. Normally, Derby winners hold their form in the Preakness, even though it's a two-week turnaround, despite what I just said. But the Belmont is where it catches up. It caught up to California Chrome. It caught up to War Emblem. It caught up to Smarty Jones in 2004. He was out of gas in the stretch. And it might catch up with him here. The other thing is, while we mentioned that front runners often have a good chance to win this race, the other kind of horse that typically wins a long-distance race on dirt like this is what we call the grinder, the horse that doesn't have the big, majestic closing kick, but just keeps grinding away with these quarter-mile times that just don't really slow down much. I mean, remember, they're running on dirt. If you've ever been to Jones Beach in New York or, you know, let's say a beach in Miami, they're tough to walk on. They're tiring, and horses typically slow down during a dirt race. They don't look it, but they do, and it becomes a war of attrition. Well, these kinds of grinders don't run really fast out of the gate, but they just keep coming at one pace, and they don't really slow down. And there are a bunch of those in this race that could have something to say about it, like Tenfold and Blended Citizen and Hofberg. I think all, any of those three have a Decent chance to be there at the end. You know, you mentioned Bob Baffert in there, Barry, and, and uh, listening to the podcast, I love the nickname of the only other person who who had won two Triple Crowns, Sonny Jim. Sonny Jim uh, Fitzsimmons. It, Bob Baffert would be equaling that, and that was back in the 30s. I mean, what's it say about him if he were to train a horse to go win a second Triple Crown here? Well, he's had five attempts at the Triple Crown. Five, well... He's had five horses that have won two legs. Point given, didn't win the Kentucky Derby, won the Preakness and the Belmont in romps. But, I mean, this guy, 
let's put it this way, Seth. All right. I am a Newhouse graduate. So are you. One of the things you're taught in journalism school in any kind of performance medium, and it really should go toward anybody in any walk of life, is that you figure out not only what you're good at, but what you're not good at. All right. So, for example, as a second career, I narrate audiobooks and I want to do voiceover. You're not hiring me to do a lipstick commercial. It's <laughs> not going to happen. So Bob Baffert understands he used to be a quarter horse trainer. Quarter horse is a different type of, of running horse in, in primarily in the Southwest, short, stout, you know, sprinter types. And that's what he chooses for the most part. He knows he's not going to do well running grass horses. He's not good at that doesn't look for those kind of horses. He doesn't look for those horses that are big, slow, and come from behind. He wants a particular body type that will give you some speed, sprinter type, and maybe some of those sprinters can carry their speed a mile and a half like Justify is going to try to do. But he looks for the same kind of horse every year. And his horses don't always come from big-time breeding either. A lot of his champions, like Silver Charm and Real Quiet back in the 90s, were not regally bred horses, but he looks for the same kind of body type. He knows what he can do. He knows what kind of horses he can train, and that's what he goes to look for, and that's what's made him so great. Talking with Barry Abrams from the In the Gate podcast, and, and Barry, I wanted to wrap up with, with one more thought that, that's not really about the the, the Belmont this weekend, but I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on this. Obviously, one of the big stories in sports is, is this gambling law and, and the Supreme Court decision, and now you can, you know, it's up to states to, to put this into effect. I'm curious what you think this has, what effect do you think this has on horse tracks and, and the, the tracks, you know, like a Monmouth Park or, or the Meadowlands in New Jersey? You know, are these places that could add a sports book and, and maybe it helps them out and helps out their, their horse racing business as well? When we look back on 2018, the Triple Crown is not going to be the major story of the year. The sports gambling revolution, if you will, is going to be the major story. Now, horse racing, unfortunately, is a very fractured industry, very decentralized, doesn't speak with one voice, like having a commissioner of the NFL. I mean, if you'd like to elect me commissioner of horse racing, I'm all for it. But it doesn't have that one voice right now. That's the problem. Now, having said that, um, I think where gamblers are today, and I'm not an expert on this, but I've talked to people who are, and they say that the younger gamblers are not as interested anymore in gambling on roulette, slots, or craps, games of chance. They want data-driven games of skill, particularly daily fantasy. Well, hello, horse racing's been around <laughs> for 150 years. That way it was the original game of skill driven by data. The problem is it's almost impossible to read a past performance chart if you've ever tried. It's very difficult. If the racing industry were ever going to get to the point of making that fairly simple, I think it would be huge. Now, right now, these states are not probably going to legalize gambling online there are some issues with that. They're going to go with brick-and-mortar places. And, of course, racetracks are you know, places where gambling is already licensed, so that makes it easy. Monmouth Park, Delaware Park as two right-now examples. Um, if racing gets itself together and can speak to the millennials with daily fantasy and data, they might migrate over and say, hey, let's 
rediscover this. Let's give it a try. And by the way, it's a great social experience, too. Uh, that could be a, a, a where the rising tide raises all boats. Big if there that the racing industry, you know, updates and modernizes to the younger person. But I think a rising tide can raise all boats. Barry, really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for coming on and making some time for us. Anytime, Seth. Thanks so much. Barry Abrams, host of the In the Gate podcast on ESPN, ESPN Plus. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, that does it for us today on a show to be named later. Thanks again to Barry Abrams from ESPN. Check out his podcast, In the Gate. If you're a horse racing fan, you can get it wherever your podcasts might show up on your phones, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it may be. Also on ESPN Plus, if you subscribe to that, the new uh, ESPN streaming service. So check that out. Of course, a good listen ahead of this weekend's Belmont Stakes. Tomorrow, as mentioned, we'll have Chris Carlson on to talk more about this Doc Gross thing. And hey, maybe we'll even have a name by then. We'll talk to you later.